0: Hi, this is Ken Doherty, Hardy and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. Red Devil Talk is the latest Manchester United fan site with authentic write-ups on all things United, as well as interviews with former players. In addition, Red Devil Talk examines the growing concept of sports psychology in the modern game. I'd like to start the interview by... Speaking about your childhood, if that's okay. Okay. I read your autobiography recently, and One thing struck me in the opening chapter. You said that you felt as if you were the only United fan in the playground. You felt as if you were surrounded by Liverpool fans, and the word you used was squabbling. What are your memories of those times? Um, I just, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, it's
1: interesting. I went to school yesterday, actually, in Falesworth. And I actually asked the question in two classes, how many United fans were there, And I would say probably 85 percent of the class put their hands up, and there was probably about another 15 percent supported city. And I think the influence of the Sir Alex Ferguson here has had a huge impact obviously on the fan base locally. but growing up where I was, I was in Berry, it was about probably, well, 10 miles away from Manchester. Um, there were a lot of Liverpool fans. And, I mean, maybe that's down down to to the influence of obviously Liverpool being successful in that area, probably was, but you wouldn't have expected so many Liverpool fans to be in a suburb of Manchester. So, I think my view was that I, I couldn't understand why... I could understand why maybe people supported Berry or Bolton. I couldn't understand how they ever supported Liverpool coming from sort of where we lived. So, no, I just... I just remember it being painful every year. I remember it almost felt like false promises every year. It almost felt like, you know, we're one player away from doing it. Where you know, we, we got excited every single summer. We got excited when we started well. Uh, but then it always fell away, it never materialised and we always ended up being, you know, looking like the fools at the end of the season. The odd FA Cup I mean FA Cups in those days were big was a big it was a huge trophy. It was a lot more significant than it is now. And it meant a lot when we won the FA Cup, but it didn't obviously compete with winning a Premier League or a European Cup. So, I mean, there were tough times for a United fan growing up in the sort of 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I was late 70s when I started watching them and obviously mainly the 80s, and it was a tough time. For the, for the fans who haven't obviously lived through a period of not winning leagues and not winning, you know, um, yeah, not winning, not winning leagues... I would imagine the last five or six years has come like a shock. I mean, this 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 last five or six years was the norm when I was growing up, and it, it's a particularly painful time.
0: It's the first time in my lifetime that they've not won the league in, you know, usually it's been a year or two, but this is the longest yeah. This is the longest of my lifetime, so it's a bit of a shock.
1: Yeah, and I think, look, City, City winning it with the investment that they've put in, Chelsea winning it with the investment that they've put in is one thing, I do genuinely believe that Liverpool have a chance of winning the league this season. If they were to win it, then it's a whole different ballgame. Because they are a club who've got a fan base. They are a club who've got... you know, it, I, I know from working on Sky that the two clubs that are most watched by a million miles are Manchester United and Liverpool. And Liverpool, with the Premier League title under the belt, would be a real force. And
0: I think that that's something that's enough to scare the living daylights out of any United fan. I think it's probably the strongest Liverpool team in my lifetime.
1: They are strong. I mean, they've been coming up on the rails for a year or two now. It's not just happened overnight. But, you know, for a team to reach the Champions League final, you've got to have a lot about you. And I think that this season, they've added, obviously, to it. They've spent the most money. Um, They've recruited so well over the last three, four years. They've they've got a team that's been built by Klopp and for Klopp. Um, Whereas at United, the problem is that you've got a team that's, been built by three different, four, well, four different managers, and not particularly for one manager. So there are still Sir Alex Ferguson players, there are Louis van Gaal players, there are David Moyes players, and now there are Jose Mourinho players. And what you've got is a level of inconsistency in the approach on the recruitment. Whereas actually, with Liverpool, every player that's been brought in fits the bill for what Jurgen Klopp wants, and he's been given time to do it. And that's why I was vocal around supporting Jose Mourinho in getting what he wanted in the summer because I felt as though that he needed to build a team that was by him and for him.
0: You touched on Mourinho there and we'll move to that shortly, but for now, I'd like to stick with their childhood. How much of an influence was your dad on you in those early days? He was my biggest influence in doing what I'm doing in my life in
1: terms of taking me to United. I say I I refer back to it. because it 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 was so... Recent yesterday, I went to a school. I I asked the kids in the school uh, how many of you have been to Old Trafford, and you know about ten of them put their hands up. And I said to the, you know, I said to a couple of the boys at the front, I said, "What were your thoughts? What did you think?" And they just went, "Wow, it's big." And I just something, it made me, it made me uh, shiver a little bit in my in in terms of. That's exactly how I felt when I first went to Old Trafford. And I remember walking up those steps and thinking, Wow, this is just like amazing. It's massive, it's huge, it's it's just unbelievable. And I think that, that to think that kids still to this day get that feeling of walking into Old Trafford and that feeling that captures your mind and your heart and your, you just wanna be there all the time. Um, that, that came from my dad. He influenced me obviously in terms of you know, taking me to football all the time. Uh, I played for, you know, I played four or five times a week, and my dad always took me. My mum's obviously took us as well, but you know he was the biggest influence that I had on my life because he took me to every United game that he possibly could from the age of five through till about ten. When I was about ten, um, he started working at uh, you know Burnley and Bury football clubs. So on a Saturday, sometimes I would go and watch them. Uh, just because I couldn't get to the games and then I started going again properly when I was about 14 when I got when I was schoolboy forms at United um, and you know started to go regularly again so I missed probably about three years from the age of sort of 11 to 14 but from the age of 5 to 10 11 you know it was constant all the time and then between 10 and 14 I watched less because I went to watch Bury a lot because that's where my dad had to be on a match day and then obviously at 14, I went, I went back to watching United again because that was obviously my, you know, who, who we supported.
0: I'm from Ireland, obviously, so I don't get to as many games as I'd like to. But I remember the first time I was there. And it does make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's, it's just the most fantastic place.
1: It is. And I think, you know, obviously when I went sort of, uh, you know, the age of five, and I think of the Stretford End and I think of the United Road and I think of the paddocks and I think of the the amount of people in there and the the noise and the swaying back and forward and the atmosphere and the thrill was just it was it was absolutely unbelievable it was it was something that you can't describe I mean no modern football ground can create it and it's just something that will live me for it with live with me forever I mean you know, I was obviously the. I was always in the K stand. That's where our tickets were. And just, you know, you could just sense everything. I mean, the away fans were beneath us, and you know, you would get. I I, I always remember the sound of the coins coming up from the paddock below, from the away fans, and thinking, "What?" You know, I remember asking, "What was that?" And, you know, when it hit the when it hit the seats, it made like a real noise that you always remember. Uh, and I just, you know, just I remember coming out against West Ham once onto the forecourt and it was absolute bedlam and my dad having to grab me and Phil and just rush us through it and thinking, you know, it was almost like it was, it was and th- this this happened quite a bit and, you know, it just that was, it, you know, it's what it was back then but it's just what you knew and I just always remember going there every single Saturday or every Saturday that United played at home and queuing up uh, for the, you know, we, we went to Marina's Grill at the top of the road there and, 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 and had fish and chips and, oh, well, I didn't have fish and chips to be fair, uh, I, I I had different food, but I I had chippy, of chips and gravy or whatever it was, pudding, chips and gravy, and just pie, chips and gravy, and just I just remember sitting in that little cafe, and always getting in, sometimes having to queue up to get in, and then walking down to the to the forecourt, and just unbelievable, really, just you know it, it was the best day. I, even thinking back to sort of knowing that I, you know when you're a kid and you're in a car, even though it's only for half an hour you think's a long time and when you drive over Barton bridge and you realize that you're nearly there you know it's the next turn you know you know, you know that the, you're turning off the motorway soon it's just an incredible feeling really
0: i read Jamie Carragher's book recently and he said that there are actually more similarities than differences between Liverpool and United he speaks about the passion of the fans Two areas being working class, obviously, the passion for music, but how much does he resent each other on the field?
1: Well, we didn't like each other at all. I mean, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, you know, you think about he epitomised everything that Liverpool were. It's quite a simple theory. If you're a Liverpool fan, you should never want Manchester United to win a football match. If you're a United fan, you should never want Liverpool to win a football match. Simple as that. Now, we obviously get over that when we're on television and we do our jobs professionally, but the reality of it is, you know, if Liverpool lose a football match, that's a good thing. You know, if Manchester United lose a football match and you're a Liverpool fan, that's a good thing. And I think that the rivalry was big. It was big. I mean, we felt the clubs, as did a number of other players, you know, you think of Jamie Carriger, and you think of Steven Gerrard and you think of um, Robbie Fowler or Steve McMahon and those lads and you think of you know Bex, Scholes and me Giggsy, Butsy Phil you know we felt the club in our hearts it was it it was there was nothing going to come between us and our clubs and it was the same for them and you know from our point of view we were desperate we were desperate to win desperate to win you know it was just and and, and they were obviously um, you know desperate to win as well but it just happened to be in that 20 year period when we were playing we were better Thankfully,
0: have you mellowed a bit? How would you describe your working relationship now?
1: Mellow between, between me and Carragher? Oh, absolutely. I mean,
0: you come to pass that way when
1: you're playing for United. You're on an island, and no one gets on that island. And you don't give a shit about anybody else. Just that—that's it. Anybody comes near the island, unless you, if your name's not down, you ain't coming on. And you—you know—you just don't let anybody. in. that was the siege mentality that Sir Alex Ferguson, you know built he built an island he built a, a culture within a, a, an island that everyone looked after one another it was only us on it and no one else mattered and when you finish playing your career and you leave the club of course you're mellow you still support the club you're still desperate for the club to win but then when you go into a tv studio you know you'll see that relationship that we have it's a healthy relationship if there's a if there's a if there's a route to be had we'll have it we won't force it. If, if there's an agreement to be had, we'll, we'll have the... If, if we agree on something, we'll agree. But if we disagree, we'll have the route. Um, and if there's a, and if we can take the piss out of each other, we'll take the piss out of each other. Um, and, and that's just the sort of... That's the relationship. It's... Uh, you know, we know where we stand. But I, you know, over five, six years, you know, four or five years, you work with someone, you get to know them, and you respect what they stood for, for their club. Um, and, you know, you respect what I stood for, 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 for United. But you know, it's 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 a it's a healthy respect, but one that one that's quite. me, he goes to United, he goes to Liverpool to watch the to watch with his son. You know, he was at the European Cup final last year. He, you know, he would go and watch all the games as I would go and watch the games that I would you know uh, can watch when I'm not on television. He would go and watch the games himself.
0: Obviously. You come from a very sporting background. Yourself and Phil have represented England in football, and then you have Tracy, who represented England in netball. Was there any rivalry run up?
1: There's a rivalry, but a rivalry that, to be honest with you, where actually you can't really determine the outcome of each other's success. You know, the, the, the success of, our, of me and Philip was determined by our coaches and by our manager. We just give our all, do us, do the very best that we can. But the manager is the one that picks the team. So me and Philip obviously at times were playing for the same position. Um, in terms of my sister, obviously she was playing in a different sport, so there wasn't that competitiveness directly. But when we obviously you know played sport, young, you know as youngsters at home, and we might have played, you know, I don't know what we would play on the side of the cricket pitch or the rounders pitch or the hockey pitch, watching my mum and dad play sport, you know, we'd always have that competitive element. And, and you know, I watched my. I watched my daughter doing cross country last week, and I think she finished 17th out of. I mean, she was a year young, it was it was year five and six, and she finished 17th out of about 70. Um, but I remember, you know, in the last straight, I remember she was fighting up the hill to run and, and trying as hard as she could. And, I, you know, you can see a competitiveness in her, and I think that's what, to be fair, a lot of children have. They have competitiveness, they want to win. Uh, some more than others, but you know there is a real competitiveness to want to win, and I think we had that as kids because you have a choice in life—you can either want to win or you can basically accept that you, you know, that you
0: you just take part. And for for us, we always wanted to win. I'd like to talk about 1986 now for a second, if that's okay. When you received the okay. when you received the letter to join United School of Excellence, what do you remember about that yes. day? I
1: remember it. I remember where I was. I remember seeing the letter. I remember the feeling that I was amazed. I was, I was surprised and happy. Um, and to be honest with you, you, know, you, you do realise at the time, you know, it is a big moment in your life because you're so happy. You don't get that happiness all the time. And there are significant moments in my life and that moment was a game changer because once I got in through the doors in 86, I didn't leave till 2011. I never left the club. I was there, I was I was wearing that badge every single week for 25 years and I held on to that badge every single week for 25 years and would, didn't want to let it go but in the end had to because I started playing crap um, and my legs had gone but that letter was a game changer and I have to say to this day, Mr. Wright, my primary school teacher who had the faith, the belief in me to write that letter to the scouts at Manchester United to ask me to come for a trial is the best thing that's ever happened in my life because it transformed everything that I did in the future.
0: In terms of getting the taste for success obviously what it takes to be a champion over a sustained period of time how important was the Youth Cup win in 1992? The youth club- I mean, there were significant moments.
1: If I look back in, in my, I can only speak for myself, but I know some of the lads would say the same things. The letter that I got in '86, the schoolboy letter that I got in '89, that told me that I was getting not only a, not only a, a, a schoolboy contract from 14 to 16, but I had a promise to a YTS at Manchester United, which meant I was going to go full time. That was the second big moment. And then the third big moment was when we started and we won the Milk Cup first year and we won the Youth Cup in the first year. And the Youth Cup success, because it did been the first time that it had happened for, you'll have to find out for me, but it was something like 27 years or something. The win the Youth Cup, it just gave us the confidence because the club hadn't won it for 25,
2: 26 years, just to think that we could win. And once you start winning, you have a choice to make. You either think that you've basically done it and you've achieved and you've done everything, or you think, well, that's me now. I want to carry on winning. And I was lucky enough. The first team, which was the next biggest ball, won the league for the first time, the first year of the Premier League in 1992-1993. So success happened at the same time we joined the club for the first team, which meant that we came into a winning team as as a youth as youth graduates and that then meant that ultimately we just were, we were built winning we just we were happy to we were basically all we knew was winning we won the, we won the A team league we won the reserve team league we then won the uh, the double in our first full season uh, even though we lost the double in my half season the year before in '95 you know we didn't know anything else but winning and you know that was built from Charles Fergie so this was a vision. That was built in 1986 when he arrived down from Aberdeen. He wanted youth players. He wanted young players. He wanted players to come through the system. He wanted to win the league. He wanted to knock the Liverpool off the perch. He wanted to do all these things. It all came together in the sort of early 90s.
0: I can't let this pass without asking about the treble team.
2: The treble team, I think it had, I think it just had a team that had a spirit, a cohesion, a group of players who were all at the peak that a midfield that, to be honest with you, was off the scale. Giggs, Sculls, Beckham, Keane was off the scale. There'll never be a midfield like it. There never can be a midfield like it. It's the best midfield that will ever play in English and British football. It has dribblers, it has goals, it has attackers, it has passers, it has crossers, it has intelligence, it has determination, it has energy, it has stamina, it has everything. And that midfield, to be honest with you, was, was the real force. I mean, there were a lot of other factors, but that midfield was just so outstanding. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Probably, probably three or four of the best players I've ever played with in that midfield.
0: I just have a couple more questions. The media reports that the club feel uncomfortable with the influence of the class of 92. Do you think this is true?
2: You'd have to ask the club. I know, I mean, what? I've no, re- I've no reason to believe, and I've got, I, I can't understand why they would feel uncomfortable about us. No, I mean, I, from my point of view, um, you know, Nicky's working in the club, Ryan's worked in the club, Paul has, Phil has, all since we've retired. I think that, to be fair, there's been a suggestion over the last couple of years that because we're all in the media, I mean, obviously gold has been in the media, I've been in the media, uh, Phil has and Ryan has at times, there are maybe United games that we've worked on where the club haven't played well. I mean, take that game, for instance, two, three weeks ago against Brighton, you know, I'm doing the commentary on that game, and it's a really poor performance, I don't really know what to say other than it was so bad, and you know that can be seen as, uh, as being critical, but... I don't know any. I mean, United fans managed the stand at the end before the end of the game. They could stay to watch it. It's that bad. So I, yeah, I don't really know what to say on television when I'm talking about a performance like that. But you know, the, the, uh, w- there's no problem for me. We, we absolutely love the club. We we want the club to do to do well. You know, from that point of view, it is what it is. I mean, I, I don't get involved in the politics of, of, of things like that. Yes, that's partly
0: where he got that from. <laughs> How would Gary Neville the player react to criticism from Gary Neville the pundit?
2: Well, you know something? I didn't like criticism.
0: Actually. But you know something?
2: One thing I never did was answer to a critic or a pundit. And I can't believe nowadays. But what's happening is journalists are going into press conferences, not even not even thinking of their own questions, but actually quoting what pundits have said. And actually trying to basically create a, create a divide or a wedge at the end of a match between a, a pundit who's made a play for the club before and the manager of that club, and the managers are falling for it, up-line and sinker, and the players are falling for it, up-line and sinker. I mean, we had we lots of criticism during our careers from pundits, and never once ever thought it was a good idea to take a pundit on. There are times when I, when they are journalists, I would, I would talk to them privately and tell them they're out of order, but never publicly. You can never. Why would you make somebody on television feel like they can impact your performance or your mood? Why would you give them the even time of day? I have. Not, I mean, Jurgen Klopp did it last week. Um, you know, regularly now, with you know, regularly now, managers are taking on pundits, and to be honest, all it does is actually help the pundits. It doesn't, I don't think it helps the managers or helps the actual players. Because the play—if I was the manager of a club and that—if if I was a player in the dressing room, I'd be thinking that the manager was distracted because he's answering the pundits all the time.
0: I think that's the modern world, isn't it? Modern society, the power of social I mean, media.
2: I, I just think, to be fair, everyone's become a little bit too sensitive. And the reality of it is, they're just words. I mean, when, I've been more worried about what the fans are saying on social media and what the pundits are saying in the studio.
0: Do you have any ambition to be part of United in the future? Be it in the coaching role or a football director role? Look,
2: I I, I left United at the age of 36 and I was offered a job at the club. I offered a job as an ambassador for a year and I did that but then left. And, you know, Sir Alex wanted me to do some coaching with the youth team. But I really felt like I needed to... Prove myself. That it was it was nothing to do with media at the time. It was more about the business interest I have and the fact that I want to I want to prove myself in a different line of work. I wanted to I wanted to do different things. I knew that if I was in the club, a club that I love, I would be restricted in terms of things that I could do externally for the rest of my life. And I just feel as though the, I didn't want I did also didn't want to hang off the club. Uh, and, and just sort of, you know, the first year that I did the, uh, the ambassadorial work, I enjoyed it and I, I went to some great places and I the company and the, and the staff at United are wonderful and I was looked after but I just sensed that you know, it wasn't really going to give me the satisfaction that I needed to be able to go and do what I wanted in my life which was to try and make the next 25-30 years of my life uh, a success but away from football. Um, And that's what that that was my ambition. That was what I told myself at the end of my career. I wanted to make. I wanted to try and prove myself in different areas and do different things. Um, And so, for me, um, you know, I love the club. I I want the club to win. But at this moment in time, my my short and medium term future is 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 absolutely set. I want to get sold into the football league. Um, We've got a, a a development in Manchester which is important to the city and it's important to us. Um, I want we've, we've got a university that the first students come next September and I want we want we, we promised ourselves we would give a pathway to young people and and our academy at Solford is important to us. so we've got the academy and the and the university that we really want to kick on in the next 12 months. We've got the football club to try and get into the football League. Uh, and, I, and I'm the one who, if like, leads on that from the point of view of the of the, of the of the operational side with the lads. So I'm the one that, you know, I'm, I'm on my way to Manchester now for meetings. You know, we're opening I'm opening another hotel with Ryan in March. So four or five big things that I've got to do in these next four or five years. There's obviously the media side of things and my sky contract for another three years. So I, I've got, in my short-term, medium-term future, I've got no ambition to do anything other than the, what I'm doing.
0: Okay, and second last question, where do we go from here? What do United need to do to reclaim their place at the top of English football, do you think?
2: Look, I was quite vocal a few weeks ago, and it took a lot for me to be critical of uh, Ed Woodward, but I felt, it, I felt as though it was needed, because I think that when you don't support the manager in the transfer market, which is quite obvious that he wasn't this summer, and I think it's a very dangerous road to go down. And Jose Mourinho was given a new contract last January. And that contract, obviously, when you offer a manager a contract, you explain to them uh, that you know they're obviously you're, you're giving them the biggest message that they're they're a they're, they're a part of the club for the next few years. And my view was that Manchester United, quite obviously, to challenge for the title this year needed to do what Liverpool did to spend hundred and seventy million. They need to spend they need to get two centre-backs, they need to get a winger, they need to get another midfield player, they need to get a, They need to get potentially even a left-back if Luke's not going to be fit. So there were four or five players that needed to be added that everybody could see, that Jose listed out, he told us he'd done a list, and that list was ignored or not delivered upon. And so for me, my view is that all you can do is make sure that in January, that Manchester United do what they need to do in the transfer market to support the managers to win the league. Manchester United football club have to win the league. They have to win the league. And if if Joseph and the team and the players can keep in touch, within a few points in January, which they're capable of, and get one or two players in, there's a chance. They have to believe there's a chance. We should never move away from the idea. Of Manchester United's only acceptable aim is to win the league.
0: I see on Twitter a lot that Mourinho has lost the players, which I don't believe for a second. He's lost the fans, which I don't believe. I think Woodward not backing him it definitely creates a sense on the outside looking in that he's being undermined. I used I used those words a few weeks ago. I thought
2: that I thought he was undermined. But what I will say is. But he's definitely not lost the changing room. You don't play like the team did in the first half against Tottenham and in the game against Burnley and Watford if you lost the changing room. They're the types of places if you've lost the changing room that you will lose. But there's no way you've lost that changing room. In fact, I've been consistent from day one because that's the first thing that I would always look for as a player switching off. And it's very clear that Jose has a good relationship with the players and he has the players. That's not to say it's perfect with every single player, but he, he has the backing of the changing room. And I think he has the backing of the fans. I back Jose Mourinho. I think that he's a great manager. I don't go along with all this crap that he's finished and that he's over the hill and all these new, young, new managers coming in. You know, if you've got a 25-year career as a manager, you're going to have one or two, one or two three years where it might not go as well. Ferguson did. So my view is that this is maybe a small blip in Jose Mourinho's career. But it's not even that big a blip. I mean... He won two trophies 18 months ago and the league the year before that. So for his high standards, it's a minor blip, but it's not even that really. I mean, Manchester United need to be challenging for the league. Um, and I suppose in some ways we sometimes do get, you know, on one hand, we'll say that, Man- that the Manchester City team produced the greatest ever season in the Premier League, and then the next breath say that Manchester United is disappointed. And that's the 2 stories conflict.
0: Personally, I think that He's lost the dressing room tag, Is just it's lazy journalism, and it was an easy thing to say after a 3-0 defeat to Spurs.
2: No, I think, I think to honest with you, the, the Pogba stuff doesn't help, let's be clear. You know, the agent of Pogba and the uh, comments, and the, the, this is nothing to do with pundits on the media, by the way. The Pogba stuff and the, uh, the Martial stuff and the Pogba agent stuff, that's real, that's there, they're, quote, they're in quotes. So I think that stuff isn't helpful, and that sometimes creates a problem. But I think that my view is that ultimately he hasn't—he's def- definitely not worth the rest of he, he, You know that that, that to me, that's just a nonsense. People sometimes that does happen in football, but it's not happening with Jose Mourinho at Manchester United.
0: Guy Neville, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. No problem. Bye bye. Thank, thank
2: you. Good speech, Jimmy.
0: Following that initial conversation, there was a 3-1 defeat to West Ham as the players seemed to make a mockery of our claims that Mourinho had the support of the players. As well as that, there were the claims by the Daily Mirror that Mourinho was to be sacked following the Newcastle game. Following that report, Gary then got in touch with me to do a second interview on the events at the football club. It is clear from speaking to him that Gary Neville is still a big advocate for Mourinho. Here is Gary Neville, a Red Revealed Part 2. Hi Jimmy, it's Gary. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm good, thank you.
0: Fire away, I'll give you the update that you want now. Brilliant, okay. So, morning Gary, uh, since we last spoke, morning. what has changed for you? Because obviously, we both came to the conclusion that Josie Mourinho has not lost the dressing room, but then since then, we saw that it has to be said, pathetic display. Against West Ham, how would you sum up the madness?
2: The problem is at the moment is that obviously you've got two, you've got two forces really. You've got Jose, well you've got three. You've got Jose Mourinho, uh, who is a force of a manager who we know doesn't back down from confrontation. He wants complete support, but as any manager does, uh, but he is more, um, he's certainly more. On the front foot with respect to uh, you know that support he wants he wants complete enough support as every manager but he's very very bold he's he's just always been a bold manager he's always been somebody who has brought things to a head and there is no doubt that he's bringing things to a head at the moment and then you've got Manchester United obviously are a, you know one of the biggest football clubs in the world and then you've got the media who to be honest with you are probably being blamed by both sides. For their part in this, but the reality of it is, and this is not me, sort of, you know, poetry term gamekeeper. You know, when there were big spats at Manchester United when I was playing between major players, between Sir Alex Bergson, between Arsene Wenger and Sir Alex Bergson, or between the owners and, uh, you know, when we were going through the takeover, the media absolutely weighed in. Manchester United, when there is a major public difference. Historically, the media will always plow in on it because it's gold dust. The media are not at fault for what's going on at the moment with respect to Jose Mourinho and Manchester United. This is a very public, uh, you know, with what's happened with Pod, with what's happened with Martial, with what's happened with Jose in the transfer market, with Ed's briefings to the journalists pre-season around the transfers and why. This is the playing out a soap opera in public. And the media are just basically thriving on it. And when I said on when I said after the Brighton game, I can't believe the way the club's operating and the and the principles and values. These things have got to be brought internal. They've got to be. They've got. You know, there has to be some leadership shown within the club to grab control of this situation, to grab hold of the reins of the horse, so that basically he stays on track. It's all over the place, it's varying from one track to another, it's messy, it's damaging to the club and the club's brand, it's damaging to the club's values, and ultimately, you know, the club are the only people who can gain control of it. So the story that broke um, on Friday evening at Brighton that I commented on, it didn't really matter whether it was true or not, it was actually a case of, it's just one thing after another at the moment, and the club needs a period of peace and stability, and I don't believe at this moment in time that the club have got control of the situation and that was my point. There needs to be a change. They've got to have some leadership and control of the situation. They can't allow this soap opera to continue to keep playing out
0: in public because it's extremely damaging and the media are thriving on it. Uh, I speak to Barney a lot, most days in fact, and he, like me, agreed on the one thing and I'm interested to hear your opinion on it. We think that ultimately all roads lead back to the Glazers. Is that something you agree with? I always
2: say that I, you know, I own multiple businesses and if there's a problem in the business, it has to be my problem. And that's what I was saying on Friday night after the Brighton game because I appoint the guy underneath me, the guy, you know, I, I appoint the person or individual underneath me who appoints the people underneath them who appoints the people underneath them. So everything stems back to the top. What I would say is, that the Glazer family have put faith in the CEO, the, uh, the, the vice chairman, to operate the football club. And at this moment in time, the club operates from a commercial and a financial perspective very well. However, from a football perspective, football performance has to be at the very centre of the football club. That has to be the priority. And at this moment in time, the football side of the club is being mismanaged. The recruitment, the Succession planning, the uh, the pinball of moving from one value of manager to another, Moise to Van Gaal to, to Mourinho, there's no consistency of approach. So my view is, of course it stems back to the owners, but what I would say is that, they, that, that it's actually the football side of the club that's being, uh, I believe, at this moment in time, it needs football leadership. It needs somebody to come in who is qualified to operate the
0: football side of the club. During the Newcastle game, following your passionate views on Sky Sports, the crowd sang in support of you. They criticised the board. Do you think the penny has finally dropped that the root of the problem may not be Jose Mourinho? Because for me, the root of the problem isn't Jose Mourinho.
2: to be honest with you, I think that what you do as a football club board is is give the manager a platform to be able to be successful, and at this moment in time, the club have supported him financially with lots of money, however, I don't believe the recruitment process, the strategy, in any business you need to be cute, you need to be wise, you need to know how to play the market, and there are other clubs that are a lot more wise and cute and astute, But understanding how to play the recruitment market and the scouting market and the academy market at Manchester United.
0: Do you think Jose Mourinho can save his job or do you think ultimately he's going to lose his job anyway? you've got to remember that I was even criticised by
2: some Manchester United fans over my stance on David Moyes and Louis Van Gaal. I didn't believe they should sack David Moyes. David Moyes was, was having a terrible time. Um, the the results were awful the performances were awful but I genuinely think that all this stems back to not. you talk about succession planning post Sir Alex Ferguson the belief of Manchester United is always to give people a chance and to believe in them and he was sacked after 8 months and my view is the club's probably in the best shape it's been since Sir Alex Ferguson left under Jose Mourinho, so the club is actually on an upward trajectory in terms of performances. Because the club finished second last year. In the previous years it hadn't finished second. So my view is, if you then go stack Jose Mourinho, where do they end up then? And what does that then do? The new manager comes and he wants to get rid of another seven players and then you've got to spend another three, four hundred million. Then It just becomes a sort of spiral of another sort of mess for another two or three years. And this could be a role that sets in for many, many years if the club keep bouncing about and don't have a plan and a strategy. And at the moment, the question is, what is the plan? What is the strategy? What is the clear plan that Manchester United are following as a football club? I can tell you what Tottenham's is. I can tell you what Manchester City's is. I can tell you what Liverpool's is. I can actually even tell you now what Arsenal's is. Chelsea's plan, whilst we don't all agree with it, they do have a plan. These change managers every 18 months, two years. If you don't bring success, you're out. They sign players through a club structure. I can tell you what the plan is, even though you might not agree with it. At the moment, with Manchester United, since Sir Alex left, they've been bouncing around from one plan to another and changing philosophies and values of managers and styles. And they need to settle on a plan that's consistent, that's that basically they believe in. And not, you know, the manifesto, we need to know what the manifesto is and then we need to deliver on it. At the moment, you, you see Van Algeman who plays one style of football. David Moyes plays another style, Jose Brinho plays another style. You've got one master and filleting in the same team. That tells you everything you need to know. You've almost got like, you know, the screaming styles of players of three different managers within the same squad. A consistent approach that you believe in needs to be followed at the moment, it's not that way.
0: From the outside looking in, and I'm not an expert, but it seems to be a case of businessmen making football decisions. I know you spoke about it, but why was he not backed in the summer? Like he can't, he can't give a new contract and then not back him. No,
2: Jimmy, you, 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 you cannot undermine your manager in a football club. You, and my view is, there isn't any, I said it on the thing: there is anybody qualified in that club to be able to tell Jose Mourinho who is the best centre half or not? And my view is that the. But but the the finance and commercial side of the club are operated brilliantly. In fact, to be fair, you'd argue that Ed has overseen a groundbreaking programme over the last 10 years that has delivered significant value to Manchester United. He's obviously got massive value, and he's obviously a very talented businessman, as is Richard Arnold, as are the board members. But what they do not get is the football club, in terms of the football side and the football performance. They've got to employ the best-in-class people underneath them in football. They have to, and actually they could look very clever all round then.
0: Do you think now that Jose Mourinho has lost the dressing room? Against West Ham the,
2: the players just look completely disinterested. So after West Ham you start to think actually it looks like he has lost the dressing room. Then you look at the Newcastle performance for an hour and I was in the stadium and you think they've gone. All of a sudden, for 25 minutes, you actually look at them and you think, well, if he'd lost the dressing room, they could have pushed him over the edge against Newcastle, but they fought like, crazy in that last half an hour and played brilliantly. So It's actually, to be fair, I don't, I was adamant three weeks ago he hadn't lost the dressing room because of the performances against Burnley, Young Boys, Watford, away from home, which are tough places to go to. And then you see the West Ham performance and you think, wow, what was that? I watched the Valencia performance and it was mundane, it was dull. I then watched the Newcastle performance, it was dull for 60 minutes but brilliant for 30. At the moment there is no doubt that, the, that all of this noise is impacting the players. Jose looked f- fed up before the Newcastle game his press conference and the only people can that, that can provide some stability and some leadership to settle the situation down the executive, they're the only people that can settle everybody down and say, "Look, we believe in Jose Mourinho. He'll be here for another eighteen months. We're going to support him in the January window and the, and the summer window next year, and we're going to believe in the plan that we followed." And they're the only people who can say, "I'll oh, do that."
0: Since we last spoke, Paul Pogba has come out with more nonsense comments on Ryan Demander yet again. That can't help.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, to be honest with you, I think when when I saw Pogba's comments on the attacking side of things, I, I'm always careful that you know the interpretation, particularly when you're on foreign soil, and you know his English is very good, Paul Pogba, but his intent of what he was trying to say, I think, was very different than what was interpreted, and I think that's happened a couple of times with Pogba. But on the other hand, there obviously is some issues there with him. But on the other hand, what I would say is that I didn't interpret it as being a dig at Jose Mourinho, to be honest with you, did have comments from Paul Pogba. I think there have been some manipulation of certain words from people who have suited the media agenda. And I do believe that um, I do believe that um, you know that has happened at times. But what I would say is that there are obviously issues there, but I don't think that's one of them, to be honest with you, Jimmy.
0: It broke the day in the papers that David Hay is unsettled. How much will a loss would he be?
2: Well, I saw a list of players yesterday that were out of contract at the end of the season. There were about 12 of them. Um, And David Hayer was one of them. But I was under the impression that David Hayer's got another year and a half left, hasn't he?
0: I read he has one year left. After this? After this.
2: Yeah. Well, well, at the end of the day, if he runs his contract down, he runs his contract down. It would be symptomatic at this moment in time of what's happening at the club if they weren't into letting lots of players contracts from dad. down. All I would say is, the club are paying fantastic amounts of money, it's one of the biggest clubs in the world, and if players want to leave, go. I don't care. I've never cared or felt the club should be... De- you know, look, I understand that sometimes players use it as a contract negotiation point, and that's fine, you know, that happens. But if players genuinely want to leave and don't want to be at the club, that's completely different. If a player is leveraging to get a better contract, then that happens in life. His agent will always do that, and I understand it. I've been a player. On the other hand, if it's a player who genuinely wants to go, doesn't want to be at the football club and wear the shirt, then just go. And that's not related to De Gea or Pogba or anybody. That's just me with a view on every player. If you don't want to be at the club, you can go. If you want to get a better contract, of course do the best for yourself and your family. That's what everybody does in life. So I would say at the moment with David De Gea, He's been a brilliant servant to Manchester United. He's played brilliantly. I would hope that he would sign a new contract.
0: Last question, and before we finish, once again, thanks very much for getting in touch with me again. What do you think will happen in the next couple of months with Jose Mourinho? I
2: honestly don't know what's going to happen in the next four to five weeks. I can feel that there is a, there is definitely a game going on that's being played in public where there are leaks. There is definitely an arm wrestle going on. There is no doubt about that. And honestly, in the next month, my honest view is I hope this settles down, that the club regains some control and some sort of sense of uh, some peace, not sense, peace and tranquility. And that Jose gets comfort that he's going to be supported for the next 18 months through the transfer market, which, is, to be fair, well, everybody should be focusing on one thing, catching Manchester City, catching Liverpool. That's the only thing that everybody in that football club should be thinking of. And whilst this arm wrestle is going on in the media and in public, it's distracting from the major task in hand. The the two clubs that Manchester United's greatest rivals are at this moment in time, along with Chelsea, vying for a Premier League title. And that is all that matters. So my view is, I haven't got a clue whether the stalemate is going to happen in the arm wrestle. Or whether one of the sides is going to give in and submit, or whether one of the sides is going to basically force the issue. But it's, to me at the moment, it, i prefer both sides to sort of turn the arm wrestle into a handshake, stop playing it out in public, and basically build the football club towards being a Premier League title winner in the next 18 months. That would be my view, and that Jose Mourinho is at the heart of that.
0: I agree. Gary, thanks very much. Okay, no problem. Good speeches, Jimmy.
2: Bye bye. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Pass Dixon, who uh, comes back on him, it's a wonderful run from Giggs! Sensational goal from Ryan Giggs! Barry Pallister calling for it, James can only fist it, it comes for Cantona!
0: Oh! I don't believe it!
1: Well left by York, fed by
0: Cole, back to Andy